0: To uh, Toddler, Nursery and Children's Church to be dismissed at this time, those who remain in the sanctuary, if you would please two passages of scripture this morning as we continue taking a look at uh, the Advent season, Matthew chapter one, Matthew chapter one and Hebrews chapter one, Matthew chapter one and Hebrews chapter one. Starting in the Matthew text, just one verse, Matthew chapter one, verse 21, this is the word of the angel to Joseph. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Then if you flip over to Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse one, it says, "God." After he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things through whom he also made the world. And he, Jesus, is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature and upholds uh, all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty on high having become as much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. Let's pray together. Father, God, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for its truth. Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for his coming into the world, his first advent. Father, we pray and we long for his second advent, his second coming. But Father, while he was here He came to make a purification for sins. Father, the manner in which he was born, the manner in which he lived and the manner in which he died, the manner in which he was raised from the dead. Have been for your glory. And father, for our good, by means of salvation. Father, this morning, as we consider that, may our hearts and our minds be lifted up in thanksgiving to the great gift that has been given to us, deliverance from sins. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. This morning, coupling a couple of verses together to talk a little bit about a, a perspective of Christmas that sometimes is overlooked. We, we, we sing the songs, we celebrate, we think through the birth of Christ. And what we need to remember, what we need to recall is that Christmas is about the cross. That's what Christmas is about. You say, no, wait, wait, Philip, you're getting your holidays confused. Easter is about the cross. No, actually, Easter is about the resurrection just want to throw that out there. Um good Friday's about the cross. Just if we're going to we're going to keep it all straight. Um that's really what that's about. But Christmas is about the cross. Jesus was not just born to be born. Jesus was born that he might die. And this was announced early on. We saw it in the Matthew text. We'll revisit that in a moment. Almost all of the writing about Jesus in the in the letters after the Gospels of the New Testament affirms this value and importance of his incarnation being an incarnation of perfect flawlessness, sinlessness, that he might be the proper substitutionary sacrifice for sin on the cross. That is the essence of the gospel message, and it is found in the pronouncement of his coming The first time in his birth. So starting in the Hebrews text, let's look at the first couple of verses and we'll kind of unpack this beauty and the splendor of the incarnation of Jesus and how this leads us to the cross. First, Jesus is God's ultimate word to humanity. He is God's ultimate word to humanity. We see this in verses one uh, through the first part of verse two. God after he spoke long ago in the father, to the fathers and in the prophets and in many portions and in many ways in these last days by the way the author to the Hebrews when they penned this way back when believed that they were in the last days why because the departure of Christ at his ascension Ushered in what is known as the last days. Doesn't matter how long they last. That's what we're in. We're not waiting for the last days. We are in the last days. So in these last days, how has God spoken to us? God has spoken to us in his son. So in the past, God spoke in various ways. God spoken a lot of different ways. He spoke in visions. He spoke in dreams. He spoke through the prophets. He spoke through animals. He said, what? No, read through the Old Testament. Wild. There's a lot of wild ways that God spoke to his people. Balaam's donkey comes to mind. We've got a lot. Of, the trees have a conversation at one point. A lot of different ways that God spoke. Way back when. All of that was just in part, though. None of that was whole. None of that was the full story. None of that was the the larger perspective of what it is that God was doing. It was all types and shadows. But now in these last days, in this final moment, there's a last proclamation that is being made. He has spoken to us in his son. He has done so In full. There is now a full proclamation. There is a full announcement. Of what God is doing in his world. And it is what has happened in his son. All of the promises in Jesus Christ. Are yes. We are not waiting on some other revelation from God. We have received the full exposition from the Lord. In Jesus Christ himself. What we are waiting for now. Is for that full exposition. To reveal the last part of the story to us. Which he's told us what it's going to be. It just hasn't happened yet. And that's his second advent. It's a beautiful thing. We see a little bit of flare of this. In John's gospel. If you want to turn there you can. But in John chapter 1. It's similar language to what we see here in Hebrews beginning in verse one in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God and all things came into being through him and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being in him was life and that life was the light of men. And if you were to push through and kind of fast forward down to the end. It says in verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, this is he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks higher than me, for he existed before me, for of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace for the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. And so we have the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the world to be the ultimate Word of God to humanity. That's what He is. His life, His teachings, His miracles, His death, His resurrection all declaring to us the fullness of the story of salvation from the Father. But not only is Jesus this, Jesus is also heir and creator. Notice what it says in the second half of verse 2 of our Hebrews text. It says, whom, speaking of Jesus, he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the world. And if we were to keep walking through the text and we were to continue to see uh, through all the rest of Hebrews and some of the cross-reference points that it has to the Old Testament, we see that Jesus is to receive three things because he is the heir. Heirs receive stuff. That's what heirs do. You know, you, you, you're, not, you're not an heir if nobody left you anything. Just want to throw that out there. So Jesus is the heir. And what's he the heir of? Well, he receives glory glory. Honor and power. Why? Because he died. And in his death, he was resurrected and he received the fullness of the reality of the kingdom that was already his. He overthrew the weight of death and sin and judgment. This is what he's done. And in doing so, he's demonstrated himself to be the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead, as the apostle Paul says in Romans chapter one. And so he receives as this heir glory and honor and power, which, by the way, he already have. uh, He already had. And it is now more pronounced in his life because of the incarnation, his death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. Now, we miss that sometimes when we imagine Jesus as a babe in a manger. Because in that moment, as Paul talks about in the book of Philippians, he's veiled himself in human flesh. He's allowed himself to be limited to time and space. It's a very weird thing that's going on in the incarnation. He's both almighty, omnipotent, all present God and helpless baby. Great mystery that the incarnation is. But in this, he receives glory and honor and power. And notice what it says about this Jesus. Jesus is the one who has made all things. Notice what it says here, through whom also he made the world. If you were to go to other text, other text specify that there's not a thing that's been made that has not been made by the power of Christ. John 1.3, Colossians 1, 15 through 17 Revelation 4.11, and a host of other texts make this pronouncement about Jesus. And now can you begin to see how profound and complicated the incarnation is? Because Jesus, the baby in the manger, being held by his mother Mary, made her arms that were holding him. And he made the air that he was breathing that was keeping him alive in that moment. And he made the animals that they used to make the cloth that kept him warm. And he made the vocal cords of the shepherds who came and pronounced his birth to the crowds of people. And he made the angels. That declared his birth to them on the hillside. Profound mystery that the incarnation is. But this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he has made all things. All things in heaven on earth have been made by him. And yet he finds himself in the incarnation in the first advent Locked into the reality of the world that he has made. And so we see at the beginning of verse 3 in our Hebrews text that he is God with us. We sing about Emmanuel at Christmas time, but what does that mean? Notice here how the writer to the Hebrews says, and he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of God's nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything that you can think of that you could say about God must be said about Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus is God. We know this to be true in an orthodox faith. And so anything that you could say about God must be said about Christ. And when we start thinking about divine characteristics, divine qualities. Notice here, the radiance of his glory. He's the brightness of the light of God. You know, in the Old Testament, they talked about the Shekinah glory, that that shining presence of God. Moses, when he entered into the presence of God, had to veil his face because his face was shining with the glory of God, having just been in God's presence. There's this. This reality of the the Hebrew people when they receive the word from God and the thundering and the lightning and the fire from the mountaintop and they cry out to Moses and they say, Moses, we do not want God to speak to us. You go and talk to God and come back and tell us what he said. We don't want to hear his voice again. It is too overwhelming for us. We're afraid we might die. This is God. The mountains themselves flee away from his presence. He's the one who brings down to death and the one who makes alive. He's the one who causes the blind to have sight and the deaf to have hearing and the lifeless to be resurrected. This is the power of God. He brings all things into existence. He holds all things together by the power of his word. There's nothing that takes place in his universe which is outside of his sovereign divine authority. And this is the declaration that must be made of Christ Jesus. Even while he's lying helpless in a manger, Jesus Christ is the physical representation of the exact nature of God Himself. Notice what it says He is the exact representation of His nature. Now. This is where it gets ready to segue in a moment, but it gets weighty when you ask questions like, well, why did God have to do this? And guys like Anselm give great answers in the deep past of why God became man. From a human perspective. And this is going to sound almost blasphemous, From a human perspective, verse 3 is what we were supposed to be. What's the creation story say? How were humans made? In the image and in the likeness of God. What was our role in this world before our fall into sin to reflect the nature of God? That's what we were supposed to do. We were supposed to shine the bright glory of God's greatness to the rest of creation. That's what we were supposed to do. The call on the human existence was to reflect the glory of God. That's what we were supposed to do. And so why did God have to become man? Because man was no longer living in the life he was made for. We were supposed to reflect. The image of God's nature. We were supposed to reflect the brightness of the light of God's glory. When people saw us, they should have seen the face of God. Say, Philip, you are blaspheming all over the place. No, I'm just telling you how it is. Why was our fall into sin so cataclysmic that it threw all of the cosmos into disorder and disarray? Because we were God's representatives in this created realm. God created a sacred space and he stuck an image in his sacred space, the image of himself as found in humankind. And we threw off such a great privilege and chased after our own sin. And so what is what has to happen for that to be corrected? One must come and fulfill all that we failed at. So one must come and be this radiance of the glory of God. One must come and be the exact representation of his nature. That's what must happen. And Christ Jesus has. Done this. He was, as Paul says, the new Adam. The better Adam. What made him a better Adam? He didn't fail. And we see the sovereign power of his word. Holding up all these things. And then notice what it says. The writer of the Hebrews almost in passing. This 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 full incarnational language that's going on here almost in passing moves us into this next thing that Jesus Christ is the sacrifice for sins. Notice what he says when he had made purification for sins. It's almost parenthetical, it's almost a blip. But if you were with us when we went through Hebrews, you know. Almost the entire rest of the work is about understanding what it means that Jesus made purification for sins. Almost the whole rest of this letter or sermon or however you view Hebrews to be. It's about that. It's about that purification for sins. And that's what Jesus Christ has come into the world to be. He's come into the world to be a sacrifice for sin. Friends, this is the greatest incarnational implication. Christ Jesus took on flesh that that flesh may, might be offered as a sin sacrifice, a substitutionary sacrifice for us. The infinite value of Jesus as God and yet the representative value of Christ as man. He being in exchange for us, yet his worth being so great that all of his people can be covered by the sacrifice of his own blood. This is the greatest incarnational implication. Jesus Christ has purged our sins. That's what he's done. He is the substitute man for man, because as the writer to the Hebrews says and elsewhere, The blood of bulls and goats can in no way create a covering for sin. It doesn't get it. The animals were not made in the image of God. The animals did not rebel against the mandate of the Most High. They are a sorry substitute for the rebellion of mankind. And that's why they had to be sacrificed over and over and over and over again. Because they showed only man's need. They did not supply a real solution. But then Christ comes. God in the flesh. Emmanuel. God with us. And he. He of infinite worth because he is God capable of fulfillment takes on Not only our sin, but also God's wrath against that sin and and carries this great weight into the grave and leaves it there. And through his own mighty power, comes back from the dead, overthrowing the vicious cycle of sin and death in his people's lives and gives back to them the privilege of bearing God's image again. This is what he's done. And friends, according to our text from Matthew that we read earlier, getting back to that text, the angel comes to Joseph he says mary 's going to have a child and it 's going, going to be an amazing thing, and you are going to call his name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek rendering of the Old Testament Hebrew name Joshua, Yeshua, the Lord. Yahweh saves. That's what his name means. If you know the story of Joshua, it's a very fitting name in the Old Testament. Very, why? Because Joshua is the one that gets to take them into the promised land. Not, friends, there's so much gospel going on, we don't have time. Well, maybe we do, you'll just, the Methodists will beat you there today. So, but when you think of these stories in the Old Testament... Moses, the law giver, did not carry the people into the promised land. Why? Because the law will never get you there. The law cannot carry you into the land of promise. You cannot fulfill righteousness on your own by keeping the law of God and receive all of God's promises. No, the law has to be crushed on the other side of the river. Who then carries you into the land of promise? The Lord who saves you. That's Joshua's name. And it wasn't through them keeping the law. Friends, they did not keep the law while they were wandering around in the wilderness. Please go back and read the story. It, it not anywhere close did anybody keep the law while they were in fact, a vast majority of them died off in the wilderness because they didn't keep the law. The only reason anyone across that river is because God saved them. And the guy who led them in, that's what his name meant. Joshua, Yeshua, rendered in Greek, Jesus, the Lord saves. And the angel comes and tells Joseph, hey, there's a great rich history of God saving his people. And he's about to do it in the most ultimate way he can by giving his own son who will crush the law under his feet. who will crush sin under his feet. He will crush the enemy under his feet. Satan's head will be crushed and he will be the victor and he will give people the Ultimate reality of the promised land, not a plot of land in the Middle East, but a place in the presence of God as image bearers. This is what he's going to do. This is what he's going to do. And so when we get back to our Hebrews text, as we get ready to close. What does that then mean as we celebrate Christmas and we celebrate the first advent and we think about Christ coming into the world? What are the implications of this? If he's God's ultimate word to humanity, if he's heir and creator of all things, and if he is the Emmanuel God with us, and if he is the sacrifice for sin, that mankind might be redeemed. What does that mean? It means that the Lord Jesus Christ is king over all. Notice what it says here in the second half of verse three of Hebrews one through verse four. It says when he had made that purification of sins, when Christ Jesus died on the cross, was raised from the dead and ascended into heaven at the right hand of the father. What did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. Now, we lose that. In modern. American culture. Because we as a country exists. In part because we didn't want a king. And so any language of of kingship. Kind of doesn't sit well with us sometimes. It's bad taste in our mouth. But Friends, whether you like it or not, Jesus is king. Now notice what I just said. I said Jesus is king. Not will be king. He sat down. And in the ancient way, when a king sat down on his throne, that meant that he was ruling and he was reigning with power. And when a king sat down on his throne, particularly at this time and in this culture, when a king sat down on his throne, do you know what that means wasn't going on? There was not a war going on. Because a king at this time and in this culture would have been out leading in the battle if there was a war going on. When Jesus sits down at the right hand of the father, he's declaring, you might still have some skirmishes, but this war is over and I have won the victory. The battle is mine and there is no enemy that will overthrow me. I am the victorious king of the universe. That's what Jesus is saying. That's what he's saying. This is a show of power and and sovereignty and dominion. This is a display of kingly authority. This is a pronouncement of victory. We only know, uh, this is kind of chasing after... The rabbits a little bit, but to kind of show you the point of this him having sat down. We only know. This is all that we know of for sure, with certainty from the scripture, we only know of two times. That Jesus will stand up off of his throne. In the state of things as they are right now. One. Was at the stoning of Philip. That's not right. Stephen, thank you. I was scanning. I was going, is that right? That's not right. The stoning of Stephen. It says, I saw the son of man standing at the right hand of God. That's a big deal. When the king gets up, that's a big deal. Why is it a big deal? Because he's about to go to war. The other is all of the stuff in Revelation about the second advent, when he actually goes to war and overthrows the rest of his enemies completely and brings all things to their final culmination. So only two times in Scripture that we know of Christ standing Otherwise, he's seated at the right hand of the father, making intercession for us. And when a king's sitting down, what is he doing? He's ruling in complete victory and power and dominion over his kingdom. He has no more wars to fight. He's already won. And in fact, when he gets off his throne for the second coming, we've got to get out of our minds that this is some great skirmish or battle, like some great waging of war and the swords. No, 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 no. He's coming down, sword out of his mouth. He just You don't want to be on the other side of that line when this happens. There's not really a fight going on. There's a massacre. That's what's happening. He's overthrowing evil forever. And in my spiritual imagination at the stoning of Stephen, I can envision the angels coming to ready when he stood up to look and see what was happening to Stephen. Because they're like, oh, it's time. He's got, he got up. It's time. And he sat back down. Otherwise, Jesus is sitting. That's all the examples we have in Scripture. Jesus is sitting at the right hand of God. Why? Because the victory is his already. Which means, friend, hear me this morning, if you're in Christ, the victory is yours already. Because we are co heirs with Christ. We share in all the things that He shares in because He's given those things to us as a blessed gift. We are seated with Him, hear this, in the heavenly places. Upon thrones, with Christ, ruling and reigning with him. I know normally when we like to think of the heavenly scene, we like to think of us coming in and falling down and bowing on our knees. And yes, there's that metaphor there as well. But you know what the beautiful picture in the revelation is? The beautiful picture in the revelation of John doing that—it's kind of a representative of us doing that. Christ comes to him and touches him and tells him, hey, it's okay, get up. Get up. Friends, this is the participation that we have with Christ. Why? Why? And you say, Philip, you're chasing. You're chasing. No, I'm not chasing. Bring it all the way back right here. Why? Why do we get that level of participation with Jesus? Because he had that level of participation with us when he was born in that manger. He made himself as low as he could be. A human being. Breathing this air and walking this sod. So that one day, by way of faith and repentance unto the glory of God, we could be elevated to the place of sitting on a throne with him. And in all of this. Christ Jesus has received a name. Much better than that of even the angels says it here. Inherited a more excellent name than them. And friends, the beautiful thing about Christmas being about the cross is that because Christ has come and because Christ has lived and because Christ has died and because Christ has been raised and Christ is now making intercession on the throne at the right hand of the father for his people. We. Share his name. The great gift of Christmas is not just that Christ came, but that Christ saved. It wouldn't have mattered much if he came, but he did something when he came. He saved his. People from their sins. Praise God. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you. Thank you for the wonder and the splendor that is the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Father, as we walk through this season together, thinking about the lowly babe in the manger. Thinking about Christ. In Mary's arms, surrounded by. Animals in a feeding trough being celebrated by shepherds who saw a vision of angels. Father, let us never forget, let us never neglect. The great gift that you have given us. That in Christ, we have been remade into his image. Bearing your image rightly in the world that we're co-heirs with him and that we share in his name and that we're seated with him on his throne and that we live in his victory. Father, forgive us when we neglect so great a salvation. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you to stand. as.